Folks, good morning. Lauren, Lauren thank you for reading. Um, yeah, what is a, a great and a precious passage. <clears throat> Sorry, let me get this. Um, uh, we're coming towards the end of our series in Romans chapter 5 to 8. And, um, and, and Paul has been engaging with life on the ground, life in the overlap, life whilst we've been incorporated into the realm of the Lord Jesus, but we're still affected by the realm of sin and death that comes with being human. Being incorporated into the realm of Jesus comes with being Christian. Um, it's not for every human being, um, but life in Adam's realm comes because we are human. And the question has been, how, what is the engine room of Christians keeping going in the face of the challenges that come our way? Uh, it is really helpful, it is practical, it is realistic. Um, last week he talked about, and the week before, he talked about how it is that we engage with the reality of sin. That was chapter 7 in particular. Sin is something that comes against us. It comes to bully us off track. And now this morning he's going to talk about suffering. Uh, suffering is not an easy topic. Um, we need God's help. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning so that you might minister to our souls through the words that have been sung, through prayers offered up, through testimonies given, through the fellowship of the saints. Lord, thank you that you have put us on the road with Jesus if we're Christian not just to make a start, but so that you would carry us through right until the end. And so would this passage, would these next moments, would you enable me, would you enable all of us um, to hear what you have to say so that we do persevere and we understand how that is true and possible in your good plan for us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess the two obvious questions uh, when it comes to suffering would be, why? And then, if there's a legitimate reason why, then, is it worth it? And those are precisely the two questions that Paul puts in front of us from the get-go. Right at the end of last week's passage, at the end of verse 17, and I didn't refer to it last week be because it opens up the passage that we're in today, he drops in something which sounded quite a heavy note. He's been talking about us having um, been adopted as sons of God, having a glorious future inheritance. We are heirs of God and we are heirs together with the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17, provided that we suffer with him. You are children and heirs, but there is a prerequisite that you should now, in your experience of life with him as an adopted son and daughter, suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's no fast forward to glory. There is a prerequisite for Christians now that we should suffer in this present age with Jesus. Which raises the second question, is that worth it? Um, I'm on the road with Jesus, it's hard and costly. Is it worth carrying on? And I guess we ask ourselves that question in different ways and we come to different answers depending on where you are in your Christian walk. I guess for some people might say, well, the suffering is hard, but I guess I've been walking with Jesus so long. It is hard and it is costly, but 
I've been going for so long, is there any point in turning back now at this stage? So I guess it's something of a, of a negative answer. It would be too much to give up. I would have had to admit that I've wasted all of this time, all of this suffering, if I were to turn back now. And so let's just pour more suffering after the previous suffering. Or maybe your answer is you're tempted to take your foot off the gas. Maybe you're thinking, there are things that I can do in my pursuit of Jesus if I just dial it back a little bit, be a little bit less radical, that will drop the level of suffering that I experience. It will lower the cost and the hardship. Or maybe if you're somebody who's looking into Christianity from the outside or you're not quite sure if you're a Christian, we're thrilled that you're here getting this kind of window in view uh, for you, all of Christian suffering lies ahead. If you were to become a Christian, the total of your suffering as a Christian, well, that's still in the future for you. What would encourage you to make the decision to step into Christianity? What would convince you that all of that, some of which you might be able to guess at, most of which you don't know about, would be worth it? Well, verse 18 is a, a daring claim where Paul says it is worth it because future glory way outweighs present suffering. For I consider, says Paul, here's the comparison he's making, I consider, consider that it's not, it's not a knee-jerk response, it's measured, it's a thoughtful conclusion based on all of his review, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The comparison is the realities of present suffering versus the realities of future glory. He says you can't even compare the two. Uh, how dare he say that? Uh, there are people in this room, I know, who have lost spouses, who have lost children, who have lost siblings, who've suffered abuse or neglect at the hands of parents or spouses or children, uh, people who've dealt with chronic pain or long-term illness, people who've suffered all kinds of hurts over long periods of time, disappointment and rejection. And he describes them, Paul does, as the sufferings of this present time. That encompasses all of the sufferings of living in a broken world. And he says, well, he uses interesting language in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He says, that those afflictions, those sufferings, are light and momentary. That's a bold thing to say. But I guess we need to hear it from whence it is coming. Because it's coming from somebody who knew deep sufferings. You just have to read his writing to the Corinthians. And his suffering, you rack up the record of his suffering, it is extensive. His life involved deep suffering. But he also carried a deep empathy for Christian brothers and sisters who were going through exactly the kind of sufferings that he's engaging with now. He does not say these things lightly when he says they are light and momentary. They are light and momentary. It's not, that's not something we can say to another Christian, but we can say it in the light of the comparison to the future glory. Now, glory is a word, when you go to the Hebrew word for glory, it has to do, it has the, the sense of weightiness. That's what it, so God's glory is his weightiness. It's his heaviness, the wonderful gravity of God. God's glory is the shining forth on the outside 
the projection, the shining on the outside of the reality on the inside, his weightiness of character. And Paul says that glory will shine on us, verse 18. The glory is to be revealed to us. And he also said back in verse 17, that glory will then reflect from us, which I take it to mean as we're in the presence of God, we're made like God, we will see his glory and then we will reflect that glory that we were supposed to as creatures made in his image uniquely. And he is saying that image has been restored in Christians now. We have been made like Jesus. We are sons, but one day that glory will be revealed. It will shine all around. God's glory will be seen by us and it will be seen in us. And Paul says, compared to sufferings which are light and momentary, that is heavy and it is eternal. The totality of human suffering, picture this, the totality of human suffering in this present age compared to that future glory, well, it's like dust in the scales compared to his glory. It doesn't even start to measure up. And Paul's aim in the rest of the section is just to back up that claim. So you'll see the little word for throughout the passage. Verse 19 starts with four. Verse 20 starts with four. Verse 22 starts with four. Verse 24 starts with four. Verse 26 adds that, likewise. So he's racking up proof as to why we can be sure it is worth it to continue in suffering, which is required because it is far outweighed by the future glory. Um, I've got three points uh, for us, and um, they're not exactly as Christopher Ash put them in his commentary, but I need to say that I've leaned quite heavily on him. Um, he's, a, he's a person that we knew from England. He's written a commentary on Romans. I've been greatly helped. I disagreed with his take on Romans chapter 7, but I've been greatly fueled and encouraged by what he's had to share on Romans chapter 8. So I need to give him credit, even if the wording is not exactly the same. Um, a lot of these ideas have been kind of brought home to me through what he's written. And so uh, first up, there are three types of groaning. Those are, those are the three points that I'm going to share with you. The first is this, is that creation is groaning in longing for future glory, verse 19 to 22. Um, that future glory is so great that the whole of creation is groaning in anticipation of it. That's his point. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, we're told that the, the whole created order is groaning. The created order is, is, I think, everything at this point here, everything up to but not including humanity. And verse 22, it is groaning. The reason for the groaning is in every one of those other verses, verse 19 to 22. The headline, verse 19, is that it is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That verb, um, with uh, that description, eager longing, has the sense of head up, eyes fixed forward, waiting in anticipation. It's kind of like what you do if you're in a stadium and the warm-up acts are happening, but you're waiting for the main act and your head is up and you are looking, staring at the stage, waiting for the appearing 
of the singer or the band that you've come to watch. Creation is, is standing on its tippy toes, is the image. It's waiting for the moment when humans who have been made sons of God in Christ now already will be revealed to the watching universe. And the reason that creation cannot wait for that moment is because, verse 20, for the longest time since Genesis 3, it has been subjected to futility. Futility is, is a frustrating word, right? It's, it's, it's the frustration of life that doesn't work as it should. It's just cranky, it's gears, it's, it's hard, it's full of resistance. It's the word that we explored in our series in Ecclesiastes, where we're, we're grasping at life, but we're never quite getting hold of it. We get glimpses, but then they disappear. And, and, frustra- and, and creation is not frustrated for any other reason other than that, Paul says, God has subjected it to futility. And he's done that in two ways. Uh, first, he's cursed the earth because of our sin, He has cursed the earth, the ground, and the sky itself. It's fractured and it's corrupted, and it is decaying. It's subject to entropy. Everything is kind of falling apart. But he has also cursed humankind who are responsible for stewarding and managing and cultivating the earth. So we are corrupted. I thought there was a little analogy out of our Gospel Community Bible study this week. Um, we, we were chatting, um, I think Dave and I, we were chatting about the fact, together with some people there, that of how many musicians we have been blessed with as a church all of a sudden. And um, it feels like the, the music group, like all of the singers and the musicians, is kind of like more than half the church at the moment. And Dave and I were feeling quite left out of that. And I think Darren would probably feel quite left out of that as well. Uh, we feel like our talents are being overlooked in the whole sphere of music. So we were trying to work out, and I figured, well, maybe what I could do, the role that I could play, not you know, being able to do any of this or even sing, um, is I could be the conductor <laughs> of all of this great potential and musical talents that we have here. Uh, well, what would you get out of that? You, all you would get is a cacophony. That is what you would get if I was the conductor. And the conductor of this creation, God has designated as stewards and cultivators of the earth, is humanity. That is, that is a parable of what is going on in creation. We're supposed to steward, but instead we extract and we dominate. And creation is suffering and in futility as a result. Not just of the curse directly on it, but because of us. And some would say, well, the, the problem then is humanity Um, We think of ourselves as the masters of creation, and they don't like the Christian doctrine of us being stewards of the earth. Uh, They argue, what makes us so special? Look at our track record. The solution is, if we were just removed, then everything in creation would self-regulate. Well, that is not God's design. His design is not to remove humanity, but to redeem humanity. And therefore, creation is standing on tippy-toes because creation knows that is what is coming. The moment when the sons of God are revealed, when the last of God's uh, chosen ones finds his or her way to the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then the restoration of all things will be at hand. Then creation will no longer be a corrupted cacophony, but a redeemed symphony in concert with man and with God. Creation sharing the glory of man, which in, we're told, verse 17, is also the glory of the Lord Jesus. 
Verse 21, set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is the groaning of creation? It's not the death pangs. Uh, No, the earth is not dying. Rather, verse 22, it is being reborn. A creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. The, the groaning in childbirth is very different from the groaning of someone who is dying. In anticipation of being reborn as a restored and transformed creation. That's the picture in Revelation 21. A new heaven and a new earth coming down. And Christians discuss, does that mean that the old one is going to be wiped out and there's going to be a, a, a do-over? Or is it that the current one is going to be renewed and and restored? Regardless, we're told it will be new. Revelation 21 verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. Or as Jesus described it in Matthew 19, it is a world that is being regenerated. The new birth of creation, the, the resurrection of the creation, because of the revelation of the resurrected children of God. So you see, uh, redemption and glory, where this story is going, creation knows where the story is going. And it is way more than just individual, my individual challenges being removed. It is way more than just a bunch of Christians being welcomed into heaven. It is the redemption of the whole cosmos, the restoration of the universe. It weighs much more than just our suffering. There is a cosmic restoration And the whole of creation is groaning in anticipation, on its tippy toes, waiting. But secondly, Christians are groaning, longing for glory to be revealed. Uh, Because within a groaning creation, there is a groaning church. Uh, What we are groaning for is in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, We are longing for, with bated breath, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so whilst, as one author put it, um, our hearts have been invaded by the spirit of adoption as sons. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 15. We are children now. We are heirs now. Yet there is an even deeper and richer child-father relationship to come that will be experienced fully when we are revealed as sons, when all sin is removed, when, when as he called it in chapter 7, verse 24, this body of death that we are still in is done away with, is sloughed off, like, like a, the, you know, the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis, sloughing off the chrysalis to reveal what is there and being transformed Our spirits are alive already, but one day the Holy Spirit will give life to our bodies as well, just as he did for the Lord Jesus. And so I love Paul's description in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, describing how we should think of ourselves now, how we think of our bodies now. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan. That's how he describes this. This is a tent. You may think of your body as a temple, right? I'm sure some of you, yeah, that's fine. We won't judge. Um, you may think of your body as a temple. Paul describes it as a tent. It's, it's a temporary structure. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. 
the weighty, substantial, eternal dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This body of death, weighed down by sin, sloughed off to reveal the metamorphosis that has already taken place. Anticipation, longing for groaning. I wonder how you would think if, if we talked about suffering and the groaning that suffering produces. I wonder if, if I asked you to kind of expand on the idea. It's like, yeah, you're suffering and you feel this word groaning is applicable. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of groaning with it. How, what do you understand by that word groaning? I think it's... I think it's important to get it right. I think he's challenging us. I think so often we think of groaning in terms of the, the heaviness of the past and we're living with the consequences in the present and we're unsure, we're insecure about the future. And Paul is wanting to correct us. He's not, he's not saying there is no suffering. He's saying that's a prerequisite. There is a real struggle. You still live in the overlap of the ages. You're still affected by the realm of Adam and the realm of sin and death. But because you are also in the realm of Jesus Christ, there is a new type of groaning that has been introduced for the Christian person, which is the longing and the anticipation where all of the things that we groan and moan about will be removed and transformed. Our heads are up and our eyes are fixed forward. That is Christian groaning. So my physical pain, I could groan and moan about that, and, and it's a real thing, and we don't dismiss, we weep with those who weep. But actually, Paul, there's a transformed groaning. Now it's a groaning, longing, looking forward to my redeemed, perfected body. Or in my groaning at the relational pain that I experience. Well, actually, there's also an element of it's a longing for perfected, righteous relationships. A, the deeper and richer experience of the children of God. My financial pain, which I could get bogged down in. Well, actually, I'm groaning in anticipation of a time when there is overflowing and an abundant provision and security. My grinding work pain is a looking forward to fruitful work in God's restored order, not subject anymore to decay, but liberated. And so Christians are groaning supremely, not because we are living in the cacophony, but because we are looking forward to the symphony. And the reason that that type of redeemed groaning is happening is because it is enabled by the Spirit. The Spirit prompts that groaning. We've been talking about the work of the Spirit. The anchor work of the Spirit is to join you to Jesus so that all that Jesus has achieved to bring you to the Father is applied to you, becomes real for you, so that you can live as sons, not as orphans. But the Spirit in you knows what you did not know before you became a Christian. He knows our hope. He knows where we are headed. And He is the guarantee of that hope. And Paul describes that as the first fruits. The Spirit given to us is the first fruits. What are the first fruits? There was a, there was a harvest festival in Elgin last uh, weekend. When that first apple comes in, the first fruits, it tells you two things. It tells you there is more coming. Harvest time is coming. Get ready to celebrate and enjoy all of it. It also tells you as you bite into it, this is what that harvest is going to taste like. And it is glorious. 
That is what the Holy Spirit is. We have the whole of the Holy Spirit in us. But what he is pointing us to is the harvest that is yet to come. And the harvest is more of the same. The spirit of adoption as sons has invaded our hearts. We've tasted what it is to be sons and daughters of God. It is real. But then he is guaranteeing the full, richer, and deeper experience of that going forward. And I think that's why the spirit produces a groan in us, a groan of anticipation. What does that look like? I think it looks like us crying out to God in the face of the reality of suffering. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. It is the cry of Matthew 16 that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God's will would be done in me as it is in heaven. That is our glorious future hope, and we are groaning in anticipation of it. Or as verse 25 puts it, we're waiting with patience. You can put those two together, groaning and waiting patiently. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have put those two together. If we, have, if we understand groaning as we naturally understand groaning, groaning is like I'm, I'm impatient. No, we are groaning, longing, waiting patient, with patient endurance. And so creation is growing, groaning. Christians are groaning. Thirdly, God's spirit is groaning, longing for glory to be revealed. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us for or because we do not know what we ought to pray for. Or it could be translated, we do not know how to pray as we ought. And so he intercedes for us. Uh, verse 26, he intercedes for us. Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saint. Intercede just means he is praying for us. And I think we can get confused about what that means precisely. Um, and there has been confusion in interpreting uh, these words. I don't think that this is the Spirit helping me to, to specify things to pray for. There are, there are things, wait, this is, this is true. There are, th there are times when in the face of suffering and the overwhelm, and I, I can't see my way through, that I don't know what to pray for. Should I be praying that I be removed from suffering? Is that what God wants me to pray for? Should I be praying that God works through the suffering for, to achieve his purposes? I, I don't know what to pray for. And the Spirit, I think, prompts us to pray, come Lord Jesus, come, and would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Would your will be done in me as it is in heaven? Help me to seek first the kingdom. I think the Spirit prompts us to pray in those terms, to pray as children of God. But that's not what is being said in verse 26 and 27. Because who is doing the praying in those two verses? Have a look down. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit helps us to pray? No. The Spirit himself prays for us. And verse 27, the Spirit prays for the saints according to the will of God. I think we're getting a glimpse into something very holy here. Can you fathom it? The extent of God's care for us. 
See, what is it when we groan, and we do groan, and that involves praying, come Lord Jesus, come, what lies underneath that? It is the groaning of the Spirit of God, praying to God the Father on our behalf. The Spirit is talking to God for us, for the church. Literally, verse 26, the Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groanings. No words are needed because the Spirit of God is communicating with God. It doesn't need to go via us in this case, which is why these verses cannot, as some would like to claim, be talking about the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. I know people in this church who have spoken and who do speak in tongues and whose genuine ongoing experience of that is great spiritual refreshing and edification, and I would encourage you to keep pursuing that. They are built up in their love of Jesus and in their walk with Him. But I don't think that these verses are speaking about words that are on human lips. Literally, it says wordless groanings prayed by the Spirit. It is the prayer of God to God, which is so deep that it does not need words. And this privilege, this, this undergirding foundational prayer that is being constantly prayed is for all Christians. It is the privilege, not just of a few gifted Christians. The Spirit is praying on behalf of all Christians. It is universally true of each and every child of God. And the massive reassurance of that prayer, uh, verse 27, is that the Spirit who knows the mind of God, who knows precisely what to pray because He is God, He is in full alignment and cooperation with the Heavenly Father, and with the Son, he knows the mind of God, and he is praying in line with that will. So you can best be sure that that prayer is going to be answered. So there is the groaning, the longing of creation. Under that, there is the groaning of a church that is in the realm of Christ, but still contends with the realm of Adam, the sin and the suffering. But wonderfully, under all of that groaning are the wordless groans of the Spirit of God, crying to God on behalf of the saints. And it is a perfect prayer. If you're of a certain era, you'll remember the song by Keith Green. Raise your hand if you know who Keith Green was, a singer-songwriter. Okay, there are a few in the building. And he sang the song, There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One, Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. That's the promise of verse 27. The Spirit is there interceding. I mean, when you're struggling to pray, which will be the reality for many of us, the Spirit is there to prompt us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The great reassurance of Scripture is... The Lord Jesus himself is praying for you. He's standing at the right hand of God saying, look at the wounds. I've got their sin covered. They are safe in me. And now we're told that the Spirit of God is interceding to get us to the end, to help us to persevere, to wait with patience, to groan in anticipation and not let go. Isn't that incredible? There is no gap left where you can drive a wedge between us and our certain future. The Spirit is here until the work on earth is done, until the groaning stops, until there's no need to anticipate because it will be our present experience. 
And so when Paul says the pain of our suffering is light and momentary, it's not because he can't relate to it, he can. It's not because he has no EQ, he does. It is light and momentary because future glory far outweighs it. And that is a great, precious truth for Christian sons and daughters of God to hold on to. What do you say to suffering? Why is it worth it? What do you say in answer to that? What would you say to, to Marcus Mumford? For those of you who don't know, Mumford and Sons, um, a band. Uh, do you know Mumford and Sons? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, find them on uh, your source of music. Um, yeah, reflective confrontational lyrics. Marcus Mumford is the son of, of pastors. I don't think he would, well, he wouldn't call himself a Christian. Um, he wrote a song which he released at the end of last year about things that he suffered as a six-year-old. Abuse, not in the context of family or church, he was careful to point out, but real suffering, and it kind of had knock-on effects, um, which he had kind of shelved for the past 30 years. But, um, but it came out. And, um, and he made it known in the song called Cannibal. It's not an easy song to listen to, but what strikes me there is the groaning. It's there in the way that he sings. It's in the lyrics that he sings. Listen to how he puts it. But I know I must speak it. This is kind of towards the end of the song, sort of grappling with, is there any kind of hope redemption out of the dark stuff that comes up earlier in the song? I know I must speak it. If I could forgive you now, release you from all of the blame, I know how. If I could forgive you now, as if saying the words will help me know how. To begin again. Help me know how to begin. Help me know how to begin again. Help me know how to begin again. Begin again. There's a sense of groaning. He's groaning at the past and the present, but he is also reaching forward, isn't he? Asking the question, wanting a new beginning. Is there something that lies ahead? And it feels to me that he is really asking the right question. The question that we all ask of where to, given what we have done, and given what has been done to us. And here's what strikes me on this topic of groaning, that our groaning in the face of suffering and sin in this present age will be stuck in the past and maybe in the present until our groaning is a groaning with a lifted head and eyes fixed forward to the one who says, behold, I'm making all things new. And finally, um, that is the context, I think, that will help us to understand verse 28 to 30. 28 to 30 are very abused, abused and misused verses in Scripture. I wonder if you put um, that meme up of God works all things for good. This is the kind of thing that you'll see around about the place, and this gets bandied about as some kind of whitewash for all of the struggles that we have in life and gets thrown out, and, and it gets ripped out of context. That's what allows you to use and abuse Verses of scripture, you take it out of its context. It, it's only even a fragment of a sentence, let alone in the paragraph, let alone in the context of what Paul is saying. And so let us recapture what those words really mean, okay? So that we don't send people those things anymore, right? Please, please don't. The immediate context does that, that that is not a blanket promise for everyone. It is a promise to God's children. The sentence says, and we know that for those who love God, those who love God are those who are loved by God and who know it in the Lord Jesus. 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who, who God has called to him, his purpose to make them part of his family. So this is a promise that belongs to God's children and it only belongs to God's children. God is not working your suffering for good if you never turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not. And then the next layer of context here is verse 28 is part of verse 28 to 30, funnily enough. And verse 28 to 30 are Paul's conclusion to everything he has said, arguing why future glory far outweighs present suffering. And so when we're told about this intra-God prayer, this prayer within God, the prayer of the Spirit to the Father, asking the Father, when we're told that that prayer is in accordance with God's will, that God's will would be done, the question that should arise is, what is God's will? And the answer is, verse 28 to 30. And you could summarize it like this, that God is working everything including suffering, to prepare you to be like the glorious Son, the Lord Jesus. Suffering is preparing you to be like the glorious Son. He is working in everything, including your suffering, in fact, especially in your suffering, to make you like the Lord Jesus. That's, that's where things go. That's, you see, there's an order. There's a process in verse 28 to 30. And theologians call it the ordo salutis. And there might be a picture of that there as well. Um, the ordo salutis is literally Latin for the order of salvation. Here are the different elements of salvation. And there are lots of big theological words. And um, verse 28 to 30 is a golden place for us to go to, to spot all of these words. Um, this kind of infographic has slightly different language, um, so you can kind of keep that for what you want. The language that he uses in verse 28 to 30, well, there are key words in there. He uses the word foreknowing. Uh, verse 29, the logical order starts with that, God foreknowing his children. That doesn't mean God foresees who in future would turn to him, so he's like, okay, well, that's my child because I know they're going to choose to turn to me. No, God is in control of this process. Foreknowing is not foreseeing. For for knowing is knowing and loving his children in advance. Before time even. For knowing is for loving. Next part of the process is predestining. This is the part where God decides then, because he foreknows, he foreloves, he decides who those are that he will call to be in his family. Not because of their merit, not because of anything in them, but because of his mercy. Then, verse 30... He calls, the ones he foreknew, the ones he has decided, he calls them, and this happens not outside of history, it happens in history, and it happens through the gospel. As the gospel message goes out in history, and as it is heard, that is his means of calling people to himself. And when they come to him, next step, he justifies them. And we talked about justification as being us being covered with the perfect covering of the natural born son, the Lord Jesus, so that he views us as he views his son. That's where we've got to. That's where we stand right now if we're Christian. And then ultimately he introduces a future element in verse 30, which is where the process ends, which is glorified. This is where the groaning resolves in glory. That's in the future. And so we live in verse 28. We live between 
justified, we are justified, and glory. Uh, this is the bit where we walk by the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit, we're cooperating with the Spirit as adopted children. That's what we saw last week. Um, and so it begs the question, what then is this time for between justification and glorification? What is this time, including all of the good bits, including all of the painful bits? Verse 28 says it is for his purpose. And verse 29 tells us what his purpose is. That whole process, including our life now, including suffering, is so that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is what we are predestined for. That's the, that's the end goal. That is what will happen perfectly when our, when our bodies are redeemed and the, and the adopted sons of God are revealed. That will happen perfectly. But even now, we are in process being made more and more like the Lord Jesus. That is why we have the Spirit of Jesus in us. Not just pointing us forward, helping us to grow and looking forward to perfection, but changing and transforming us even now. Because that is where it ends. That we are conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. Note how he frees us from individualism. This is not just me and Jesus in my heart. That I'm being made part of a family for Jesus. That he is the firstborn amongst many brothers. And it is wonderfully, that it is the process that God is working he is the subject of every verb in verse 28 to 30. He is working all things for good. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. It's really striking that, that he glorified that future event. He describes it in the past tense, glorified. That's not Paul getting his grammar wrong. He's saying glorified because our future glorification is so certain it is as good as done because God is doing it from start to finish. Glorified end of salvation process. You will be like his son. Right now, you are being made like him. And perhaps the most powerful tool in God's hands to accomplish that transformation now is suffering. Reminding you, of, because it's dealing with who you were, the sin and death that you were bound up with, and you want to distance yourself from that. But as you distance yourself from that, that creates suffering. Or as you look forward to what we are going to be in future, it creates a tension with who we are now. That creates a suffering. And when we realize who we are now, we are children of God, and I don't live anymore in the kingdom of darkness, that creates a tension. It creates suffering. We are not home yet. And so I want us to understand that the wonderful truth of the gospel is that the reality for the Christian experience is that there is suffering now and there is glory later. And the glory later far outweighs the suffering now and therefore it is worth it. But even more powerfully than suffering now, then glory. Suffering now is preparing us for glory. It is fitting us out for glory. It is making us more like the glorious end result that we will be. That's why Paul says back in verse 17, we are children and heirs provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering is not an optional extra for unlucky Christians. It is required for God to make us more 
like Jesus. Shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was made more evidently like Jesus because of suffering. He did, Jesus didn't have to be transformed, don't get me wrong, we do have to be transformed. But to see him clearly, for us to see him clearly, he had to suffer. And so doesn't that help us as we contemplate fear? Life is not working out as I wanted to. My plans, the things that I've been working so hard at, and I'm getting frustrated, I'm getting knocked back, I am suffering in my friendships, in my projects, in my thinking about romance and marriage. Things aren't working out as I want them to, or as I plan them to, or as I've worked really hard, as I've attached my hope to. But doesn't that change our posture in relation to that fear and that frustration? We are those who are standing on tippy toes, our head up, our eyes fixed forward, knowing that that pain is transforming us to fit us for glory. Ask the Lord, how is this struggle that I'm facing now meant to help me to groan in longing, not, for, not to be trapped here and in the past, but to be longing for what lies ahead, for the fulfillment of what Jesus has already begun in me? How is that struggle supposed to help me to do that? And in what ways through the suffering are you breaking in me conformity into the world so that you can conform me more to be like your son? Even if your suffering is terrible, know where you are in the process. Know where God is taking it. And you're tied to God. He foreknew you. He predestined. He called. He's incorporated you into Jesus. And he will finish his work in you. Let's close our eyes and pray. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen.